I want to talk to you for a moment. I'm going to hit you with a barrage of information, so I'll just tell you that right up front. But, uh, as we reflect back on this past week, on the Virginia Tech shooting, and as we reflect upon questions that are asked of us about where is God, and is there evil in the world, there was a video I almost showed you that um, they do an interview with people on the streets, and they ask them, um, what do you believe about evil? And uh, what's your position on, is there evil in the world? Many people just don't believe that it exists. Uh, they believe it's the consequences of people's bad choices, uh, bad decisions. But as we look at this past week, we know that goes beyond the extent of making a bad choice. Matter of fact, in New York University, the front page of uh, New York Times Magazine last year ran an article and New York University, the chairman of the Department of Psychology, was actually uh, kind of lobbying that psychologists would put uh, the word evil back into its vocabulary or its nomenclature. The word nomenclature simply means uh, the way that things are categorized. So if we had a fish, the nomenclature of fish would be uh, bass, perch, brim, catfish, well, psychologists had pretty much about 25 years ago begin to take it out of, take the word evil out of the psycho psychological textbooks and not use that term anymore because they determined that that was making a moral judgment uh, upon mankind and that's not what they wanted to be about. They didn't want to make a, man, a moral judgment, so they removed the word evil. But here we are, and this is by, by no means a Christian university in any shape or form, but they've come to the conclusion that uh, the word evil needs to be reintroduced because they said, you know, there are just so there are some acts that just don't fit into our matrix. Matter of fact, they went as far as to make a depravity scale, uh, which was interesting that they used that word. But uh, they, would, they would say, you know, psychosis, even though a lot of modern psychologists would not use that term, or neurosis or disorders, there are some acts that just doesn't fit under any of those categories. It doesn't fit into the nomenclature of what has what has occurred here. And so they wanted to bring back the word evil, and they said, we're not making a moral judgment. We don't want to make a moral judgment. I don't know why not. But we don't want to make any kind of moral judgment about right or wrong, but we just have to classify some acts as evil. They just don't fit in the psychological scale. Of course, we know that. Scriptures tell us 422 times that there is evil in the world. And I'm going to give you just a few from the New Testament, from the Gospels of Luke and John. Luke 11.13, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who seek you? John 3.19, this is the verdict, light is come in the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. John 3.20, everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. John 5.29, and come out those who have done Good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The Bible makes it crystal clear that evil exists. And regardless of what we think and how we want to classify things, uh, we know this, that evil exists. We know that Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. We know that the presence of evil is very real as we witnessed this past week, as we witnessed 
9-11 as we witnessed Columbine High School. The presence of evil is very real. I do want to share with you three quick things, though, that I believe Satan wants to do and wants to wrap us up in and wants to paralyze us with. First thing that he will do is he will seek to confuse us. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, that God is not the author of confusion. But Satan longs to bring about a spirit of confusion, whether it be in church, in family, or in life in general. When people begin to ask that question, where is God? When people begin to think that if there is a God, he doesn't care. And he begins to whisper that lie, even to those who believe, to promote a spirit of confusion. He also wants to consume us. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, vigilant, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion for whom he may devour, or your translation may say, consume. Satan wants to consume us. He wants us to get so consumed in the moment, in the event, in the situation, that we can't think clearly and that we just lose hope which puts us in a spirit of condemnation, which is the third thing that he would like to do. For us to experience the condemnation of the law, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Bible tells us in Romans 8.1. And in John 3.17, for God so loved the world that he sent his son not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we can recognize from that spirit of confusion when that spirit of devouring and consuming comes upon us, when condemnation comes upon us, we can recognize that that is the spirit of the evil one. But how does evil begin? How does it even manifest itself? Well, the Bible tells us that as well. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, beginning with the 13th verse. James chapter 1, beginning with the 13th verse. And the Bible gives us a prescript of how evil is attained and how evil progresses. James 1, 13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire. Starts within the heart of mankind. Starts within our desires, as we will see as this passage progresses, is dragged away in times. But then, after his desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. So you start with the you start with the desire, the desire to injure someone, the, the desire to uh, hurt or belittle or to do some kind of harm to someone is born within your heart when you do it physically or when you do it mentally, verbally, socially. Economically, it starts with the temptation. It starts with the desire, and then as they begin to, as we begin to think upon it, very often we begin to dwell. It's just a short step to actually doing it. And then thirdly, the Bible tells us this: It says, after it gives birth to sin, sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. You may be saying, I've sinned before and I have not died. And lots of people sin and they've not died. But the death that is being mentioned here is one that is not necessarily always physical. It could be the death that sin occurred of your marriage. Sometimes people's marriage dies because of sin, because it has been consumed, because it has been acted upon. 
and thus we see death within a relationship. Sometimes it can be something as simple as the death of your character or the goodness. Maybe it comes to the point to where your sin becomes so frequent and so consuming that you no longer can hear the small, still voice of God speaking to you because evil has set up residency. And unless it is removed, it begins to block out the light. You see, evil is just that. Uh, as Augustine said, he believed that God uh, was a creator of everything good. And that evil is this. It's the presence, or the absence, excuse me, of good. In other words, if I were to take the lights and shut them down right now, it would be dark in here. Not because darkness is so powerful, but because of the absence of light. In the absence of light comes the absence of goodness. In the absence of God comes the absence of goodness. And evil prevails, just like darkness. That's why that analogy is constantly used in Scripture of evil, that of darkness. When God is not the center of our lives, when God is removed from our life, when God is removed from the situation, from God, and even for us, we find a culture that wants to remove from the nomenclature, from the very category, and certainly Christ, then we begin to see how evil begins to reign, and how it begins to prevail, even in some instances, as we saw this past week. But what does God have to say about this? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, don't think it's strange when painful trials and suffering comes. The Bible also tells us in Matthew 10, the world hated you so will it hate, hated me so will it hate you. So when we look at situations like 9-11, which was an attack uh, on our method of thinking, our way of worship to some degree, uh, as they saw America as the great Satan, when we see things like Columbine High School, when we see the Virginia Tech shootings, when we see so many tragedies, even the Amish who were attacked, we can know, even though that might not have been a direct hit or a direct attack on Christianity per se, what it is, it's attack on humanity. It's attack on the goodness of God. When the absence of God exists, evil will take place. We live in a fallen world. We live in a place where many are evil, including us. You may say, why doesn't God just wipe evil off the face of the map? Why doesn't he just get rid of all the people who are evil? Well, no problem with that. You see, evil resides in each of our hearts. Matter of fact, it's easy for us to look at the Virginia Tech shooter or look at 9-11 and say, those people are evil, we need to do away with them. But you know, the real truth of it is, is that probably a large portion of the world, probably at least two-thirds of the world, looks at America and says, looks like you are using an enormous amount of resources. Looks like you're doing things that jeopardize the life of the earth. You're evil. Maybe some of them, and we know that they do, look at us and see the food that we consume, while many of them go to bed hungry, yet even starve and see that we throw away more than they eat in a day, would they not term us as evil? You see, we don't really want to be measured on that scale. If God does away with evil, He does away with mankind. 
As long as there's choice, as long as there's an opportunity to decide, evil will reign and evil will exist. It's simply part of the economy of our existence and of man's ability to make a choice. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the easiest road to hell is a gradual one. And that progresses when we fail to see the warning signs in life. You see, one of the ways that we can redeem the occurrences like this week is that we can see that it is a sign that God can use in our lives to open our eyes, to awaken us to the evil presence that exists around us. The only way that that evil can be removed, and we see this over and over in the gospel, is through the forgiveness and removal of, by Jesus Christ. It's when He comes into a life and transforms our lives, transforms our thinking. One from which is self-preservation and, quite frankly, self-gratification to, Lord, what can I do to honor and glorify You? That is what must occur for us or for life, for evil, to begin to be extinct. For it to come to a place to where it does not reign within our world. God wants us to be alive. That's why Jesus says, So let your light shine before others that they may see the good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What are you doing with the signs that have been given you? know, some signs are small. And you have to be sensitive. You have to be looking. And some signs are blaring like this week. You know, I remember growing up in southwest Louisiana and we didn't have... In fact, I lived on a dirt road. And I remember there was this bridge not far from where I lived. And there was a sign that said, Warning, bridge made ice. Uh, be careful in cold or, or damp weather. And so I remember thinking that was a stupid sign. Because it didn't uh, ice that often where I was from. And I just thought that was an ignorant sign. Matter of fact, it came to a place where I just didn't even see that sign. I did a roll right by it. Never even noticed it. And I remember after I turned 16, hadn't been driving real long. And I hit that bridge one day on a cold, rainy day. And I found, my, I found myself in the ravine. Uh, and it wasn't because there wasn't a sign warning me. It's because I chose to not even see it. I had come to a place where it was just a sign. It meant nothing to me, and I didn't think it applied to me. But can I tell you, although I don't believe God made this happen, I think He longs to redeem it, to use it. For people to seek Him while He may be found. I want us to look for just a moment at six ways God can redeem the life signs of tragedy in our lives. The first one is this. I think God wants to redeem tragedy in our lives, first of all, by directing us. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5-7, through 7, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. God wants to direct us. Many of us maybe have started off on the road with Christ, but we find it easy to kind of veer off to the left. We find it easy to just kind of fall off the track. As God sends us signs, as God allows us to open our eyes, we need to pay attention as He redirects us onto His path. Number two, to inspect us. James 1-2 says, Consider joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that testing your faith develops perseverance. You know, this week on Friday morning, my wife and I got up, 
and we noticed our stomach was very hot. And so we uh, took his temperature the first time, it was 105, and we took it a few more times. Once we got 106, so we got on there, we called a, on the phone, called the doctor, and said, You're going to need to get it in uh, to an emergency room or to a medical clinic. And so we took off, went to a medical clinic, got there, and went through a barrage of tests and needles and all that kind of stuff. And uh, told us, you know, if anything, if it gets any higher, bring him in immediately. Uh, we'll have to take some more drastic measures. As a matter of fact, we'll need to bring him back tomorrow anyway. So we went home, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden, some things that I was going to do around the house, they weren't so important. All of a sudden, some things that I was going to read and look at, all of a sudden, uh, some paperwork that I was going to fill out, just wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't such a priority anymore, because as I watched my son in the backyard, I, I recognized that this is a precious gift, and it wouldn't take much for that to be taken. And am I going to redeem the time that I have? See, often when difficult circumstances come, they cause us to inspect. And God can use it while He might not have made that situation or produced it for that meaning or produced it at all. He certainly wants us to use it to inspect ourselves. Thirdly, to correct our lives. Psalms 119.71 said, It is good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees or your precepts, that I might understand your law. It is in pain, it is in difficult circumstances that we find ourselves really searching the Scripture, really find ourselves looking to find out what is it that I need to change about my life. Number four to connect is James 5, chapter 5, verse 13 through 17. Uh, part of that says this. It says, Therefore confess your sins one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. And he's not just talking about physical healing. Some of us today need emotional healing, social healing, spiritual healing. There is healing that needs to transpire in many lives, in many of us today. And for all of us, there comes a point where healing is necessary. And one of the ways that God does that is through connecting us to the body. That's why it's so important that you become a part of a small group. Because by, quite frankly, when we look at the scriptures, we see that they did life in community, not individually. As we share life together, when those circumstances occur, when we have someone or someones to whom we can share our problems, as we can confess to them, as we can help them, let them walk with us, as we can let them help to carry us. That is the way the body of Christ ministers. It ministers through the body and through the spirit. And number five, to perfect us. Romans 5, 3 through 4 says, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Difficult times, tragedies can perfect us. If you're like me, you probably have a lot of rough edges. Maybe you don't have a lot. Maybe you just have a few. But you know what I recognize in difficult circumstances? That those rough edges start to get smoothed off. And all of a sudden, I'm not quite as judgmental. All of a sudden, I'm not quite as arrogant. I'm not as quick to give advice. As God begins to perfect me into His image. For most of us, that only comes when we struggle and when we hurt. And number six, to project us. God wants to use our difficult situations to project us. Paul said in Philippians 1.12, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance 
the gospel. To advance the gospel. That word uh, project means to cast us forward. To cast us forward into what is important. To cast us forward in our life with Christ as we evolve, hopefully, into intimacy. As C.S. Lewis said, uh, in our joy, God whispers, but in our pain, He screams. Pain is life's megaphone. It gets our attention. The question is, what will we do with it? You know, there's a gentleman named Victor Seferovikov, who, uh, who, as he grew up, was always told he wouldn't amount to much. He was a product of a broken home, and uh, he was the youngest of several children. He had gotten into a lot of trouble when he was in high school. Uh, one of his teachers had told him, you're never going to even make it out of high school. That uh, there was not much hope or much future for somebody like you. And so when he got out of high school, he actually believed that message, and he bounced from job to job and found himself even living on the street. And then one day he applied for a job, and they took his IQ, and the test came back that he had an IQ of 160. They retested him, and he scored that high again. You see, they found out that Victor was actually a genius. But he'd been given a message early in life and throughout his life that he was troubled and that he had little or no potential. And he let it consume him. He let it devour him. He let it become who he was. Let me tell you, evil, Satan, is sending a message to you today. And he's telling you, you know what, whatever happened to you, it's because God couldn't do anything about it. It's because God doesn't really care. And whatever happened to you, that's a scar of a lie. It's taking you out of the game. But God has another message. He says, greater is he that sins than he that is in the world. That we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That I'll meet all your needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. God wants to redeem your experience. He wants to redeem your life. Even as we look at the life of Christ, who was wrongfully tried, who was wrongfully convicted, who was wrongfully beaten, who was wrongfully crucified and tortured and killed. God used that experience to redeem mankind. So does he want to take your life and redeem it. So does he want to take your experience that Satan meant for evil, but God wants to use it for good. You will be able to minister in a way that others would never be able to minister. You will be able to make an impact that others couldn't make because God is going to redeem your experience if you will open your eyes and your heart and say, God, here I am. Open your eyes to those around you. Express the uh, potential, the opportunity that you would be willing to take advantage of. What about you this morning? Will you trust Him? Will you allow Him to redeem your most difficult situation in life? Will you allow Him to use what you look at as maybe a horrible and awful thing that you never want to bring up again? It takes some faith. It takes some stamina. But can I tell you this? I don't know how He will. And I don't know when He will, but I know this, He wants to. But the question is, will you say, yes, Lord, redeem me, redeem my past, redeem my experiences. I give it to you.